Hi, my name's Anna Shaflarsky, and this is Letters to the Editors. Hi, this is episode five of Letters to the Editors, for which I invite writers of all sorts to come and read their work and talk to me a little bit about it. For this episode, uh, we'll be talking to Vijay Karana, who grew up in the UK and Australia, where he hosted a radio show for a while, and you'll find out very soon that that's appropriate because he has an amazing voice. He has written zines including Aeroplanes Exist and On My Torrid Affair with Janine Garofalo. In 2014, he wrote Regal Beagle, a children's chapter book about a dog who becomes queen. So I saw Vijay read at two separate events here in Berlin. At both, he read from Work in Progress. It's a novel about a tumultuous friendship between two men. And because I liked it so much, or at least the potential of what it could become, I invited him over to record a chapter of the book. Now, reading a narrative in process is already a peculiar thing, but answering questions to things that may not yet have been written can even be more peculiar. But Vijay was kind enough to humor me, and you can listen to a bit of our conversation after the reading. In progress could also potentially mean temporary. The story could change. The chapter number from which Vijay reads, which is three, could rise, diminish, disappear. We can't be sure, and somehow after listening to the recording again after our session, I realize it only adds more precariousness to the already tipsy story. This is Vijay Karana reading chapter three from his forthcoming novel. The fight we had wasn't an actual fight, but it happened like this. I was in my apartment with a pot of Irish stew on the stove, listening to side A of I See a Darkness and waiting for him to come over. The stew wasn't designed to make Jakob feel at home or homesick or anything like that, though I knew he had eaten it a lot growing up, and he often talked about the pros and cons of his two cultures' winter cuisines. He liked the strong, acidic flavour of his Polish mother's bigos. He said it won the reheated leftovers battle hands down. But freshly made Irish stew, his father's dish, could warm you up like no other food on earth. I wasn't trying to warm him up necessarily. I mean, I wasn't trying to impress him. I was sure he would have had far better in his time. I was making it because I knew it could sit and simmer for hours and that whenever he showed up, it would be ready to serve. Stew is the perfect dish for unpunctual guests. I had followed the recipe and poured half a bottle of red wine into it, and was making my way through the other half, occasionally stirring the vegetables and roughly cut bits of meat, putting the wooden spoon to my lips. The gravy was thick and salty, and I seemed to absorb it before I even swallowed. Together with the wine, it offset the cold spring air coming through the kitchen window. I had bought the Bonnie Prince Billy album that day and cycled home with it under my arm, leaving only one hand free for balance and breaks. Buying it felt like writing a wrong. It was a classic, something that had passed me by when I was younger. When track three came on, the title track, I leaned out of the window and scanned the street. I felt a kind of energising sadness, and every street light, tree, the glowing supermarket sign, people walking by, each thing was a film frame telling me I was observing something meaningful. I was an adult, I had cooked stew, and I was waiting for my friend to arrive so we could eat it. I had no reason at all to be unhappy, and yet I could see the end of the universe click one step closer on its cog.
Jakob's arrival would be both the apex and the end of this. I had such a desire for him to arrive while this particular song was playing, so that he might feel it too, that when it ended, I put the record back to the beginning and let it play again. He would be at least another ten minutes, I had a sense for it, so by the time track three came on again, he might just be walking through the door. I considered setting the needle up in the right spot and just dropping it when the doorbell rang, but I knew that would suck out the spontaneity and leave me feeling like an ambusher. The song came on again. I went back to the window and watched. A tiny sapling I had dug up in the woods and replanted in the window box was swaying, elastic in the breeze. The stew smelled glorious. The tips of my ears were cold, so I put my hands against them. When the song ended again, I closed the window and checked my phone. I decided to let the record play until the end of the side and then start again. I could sense he'd be another twenty minutes or so. I turned the stove down and ate some more of the stew, this time tasting the meat, which was slightly stringy now. The carrot and potato were beginning to fall apart. I finished the wine and then opened the bottle I had told myself I wouldn't open until Jakob arrived. When he did bound up my stairs and through the door, I had just put the record back to the beginning of the side. He walked in to the chorus of the first track, a faster, more resigned song. The one I wanted to share with him came on two songs later, but by then he had opened one of the beers he'd brought and was telling me why he was so late. I'm in the U-Bahn and this girl gets onto the train, he said, wearing a black dress and tights. She sits next to me and I can sort of see her reflection in the window across from us. She has a ladder in the left leg of her tights, so I can see a bit of her leg through the holes. And as if she knows I'm looking at it, she suddenly opens her bag, gets out a needle and thread, and starts sewing up the hole. Darning, I said, not knowing if it was called that or not, but remembering the strange wooden eggs my mother had said belonged to her mother. They had something to do with fixing socks. Jakob went on. She brings her knee up towards her chin so she can see what she's doing, and she turns towards me, I guess because the light is better. She sews up the hole really quickly and easily, and never catches herself with the needle, even though she's not even really lifting the material away from her leg. He was smoking now, and miming the girl's sewing, the cigarette glow dancing across his own skinny thighs. He was wearing black jeans and a black t-shirt. They would have matched, the two of them. I thought she might get off at the next stop, so I said. He drank from his beer, making me wait. His cigarette hand went down to the leg of his jeans, to a small hole above the knee. He smiled. I pointed to this and I said, Can I borrow the needle and thread when you're done? I leaned forward as I laughed, putting the wine glass down heavily on the table, and even hitting a fist against my thigh. That gave him permission to laugh too, at my reaction, as well as his own triumph. My laughter was a gift, a submission. The girl on the train would have laughed too. I pictured him taking in her brightness, seeing her face smile back at him as the train rocked them subtly towards each other. She was pretty. She suddenly had red lipstick on, even though he hadn't said that. She told me she was on her way to work, and her boss didn't like it when she had ladders in her tights, Jakob said. 
and you won't guess where she works. Where, I said. He drank again. At Black Trombone. Really? She's not the dark-haired one. The one with short hair, you mean, he said. Not her. I've never seen her there before. Did you tell her we go there all the time, I said. I told her I'd never heard of it. I stared, trying to calculate. Why did you do that, I said. So I could pretend to know the Serge Gainsbourg reference, he said. I told her it was incredible someone named a bar after one of my favourite songs. You are a dog, I said, and meant it. Then we talked about music for a while. She's studying film. Hadn't she missed her stop by this point, I asked? Hadn't both of you? If, in my mind, I was in the carriage with them at this point, then I was anxiously looking up at the Uban map while they flirted. Jakob smiled and smoked. I got off with her, he said. I walked her to work. Well, while you were getting off with her, I said, I was cooking you dinner, and now I'm starving. Do you want some? Yeah, I could eat, he said. The record player had gone silent. I took the lid off the pot and stirred again. The potatoes and carrots had disintegrated by now into thick streaks of orange and creamy white. The meat had lost some of its colour. I ladled out two bowlfuls and we sat down at my kitchen table. I noticed he was careful not to spill anything on himself, something he didn't always do. Anyway, we talked all the way to the bar, he said. I have no memory of walking all the way down Oranienstrasse. It was like I blinked and suddenly we were getting close to the bar and I had to remember to pretend I didn't know where it was. He stopped and ate, daring me to ask for more, which of course I did. What happened when you got there, I said. She stopped talking and we walked the last little bit nearly in silence. When we got there, she kissed me on the cheek and she said, you know where to find me. Then she went inside and I came here. He leaned back in his chair, as he often did at the end of a story. For a moment, the only sound was my spoon scraping the bowl. Well, you know what has to happen, I said. He looked at me with narrowed eyes and shook his head enough that his hair fell down into his face. He knew exactly what I was about to say. It's perfect, I said. After this, we'll go there for a drink. He slurped stew out of his spoon and said nothing. It'll be great, I said. I mean, you can't go alone, right? That would be awkward, but if we both went... I don't think so, he said. What's her name, I said, and his spoon paused almost imperceptibly on its way to his mouth. Sarah. I don't believe you, I said. Margaret. Don't be a dick, I said. Why do you want to know, he said. I pictured the dimly lit bar with its red walls and tables covered in the wax of decades' worth of candles. She would smile at him. Her red lips would open and inside the redness would be the whiteness of her teeth. And the whiteness would be so different to the redness that you couldn't help but stare at her mouth as she called something out over the music. I can tell you like her, I said. I don't want you to lose this momentum. If you tell me her name, she'll be real. She won't just be the experience of the train, she'll be the actual person. Nice try, he said. 
You just want to stalk her. I know you. As soon as I leave, you'll be on Facebook trying to find her. He laughed, but I could tell a part of him was being serious. But you're not leaving. We're going to Black Trombone. Right now. You and me. I pushed my bowl away. Stop it, he said. Stop what? I wasn't looking at him now. I'm just saying you should seize the moment. Even if I were going to go there, he said, and show up like a madman the same night I met her and wait until she finished her shift? He put his spoon down into the bowl. Why would I go with you? Support, I said, to make it less awkward. He laughed again, that musical laugh he had, as though he was thinking about something completely different. He took a long drink from his beer. Don't take this the wrong way, he said. But I've yet to see you make a room less awkward by walking into it. Thanks, I said, stung and determined not to show it. But I think you're saying that because you're afraid of actually meeting someone more than once and having to follow up your pickup lines with something that's actually substantial. You're a creep, he said, and laughed again. And I laughed both of us holding on to the pretense that we were still just joking around, grasping it as though it were flotsam. You're the one who picked up a girl on the train, I said. How old is she, anyway? She's studying film? Is that why you're being so secretive? I went back to my bowl, but it was empty. I suddenly wanted to be out of the mundane intimacy of my kitchen. Once we were in a bar, we'd go back to teasing each other without consequence. Fine, I said. But if we're not going to Black Trombone, then where? Tonight, Jakob said. Yeah, where will we go for a drink? He pulled his t-shirt straight, looking down at the fabric. I think I'll have an early night, actually, he said. At the time, I don't think I noticed the tear, the tiny single thread come loose. No problem, I said. I'll see you on the weekend, anyway. He looked at me for a moment without speaking. Yeah, he said, and his chair scraped the floor as he got up. Thanks for the soup. After he had gone, I swung the arm of the record player back over the record and it spun into life. You had to pull a little lever for the needle to sink down onto the groove, and I didn't do this. I just watched the record spinning and listened to the high, soft hum of the amplifier. The near silence was stifling. I watched the record move around and around, a childlike drawing of a skull on the centre label, rotating again and again, like a gif that takes on new meaning by the fact that it repeats, because the human mind sees inconsistencies that aren't there, spots nuances in each identical performance of the same material. I needed to get out. I was drunk. The place would still smell of red wine and meat when I got back, a reminder. I felt better on the street. Cars accelerated through orange lights and little groups walked up and down the cobbled pavements between bars. The noise of their voices, Spanish, German, English, was a kind of calm, and it was this calm that drove me on, towards Cottbus Tor, across the busy intersection, the fruit and vegetable stand, past the Turkish fish place, and eventually, inexorably, towards Black Trombone. I'm here with DJ Carano.
And you just read chapter three of a larger book project. Yeah, it's it will be a novel, I believe. I'm not really writing it sequentially. Um, I've sort of written quite far into the novel, sort of towards maybe three quarters of the way through, but I have some kind of holes and questions that I still need to fill and answer. I've seen you read sections of this work in progress twice now in Berlin, and you've always prefaced it by saying that it was about a relationship between two men. Yeah, exactly. The, these are the two sort of main characters of the book. The friend Jakub doesn't actually appear for quite a long time because the whole premise is that their friendship has sort of disintegrated or broken up and the narrator is quite um, obsessed by that fact. And so we, we sort of learn about the relationship and learn about how it ended. So this is Jakob's brief entry and exit. Yeah, I mean, he does appear in the sense that he... Um, I guess we do go over some ground in the past of the narrator's mind. So he does appear in a scene like this, but comes a bit later. And they're two straight men, I'm assuming. Yeah, they're two men, they're two straight men. And I don't know, I find that idea really interesting. I sort of came at the novel with almost a thesis that I wanted to sort of explore, which was that sex underpins relationships between men or straight men in this case. Yeah, I was really inspired by um, this novel by Zola, Therese Racan, which I read quite a long time ago, but I always remember that he, in his preface to one of the editions, set out this idea that he was actually putting two characters into a sort of a, a psychological laboratory and experiment, and he wanted to see what would happen to those people. So for him, the novel was really an exploration. It was just the equivalent of what he would have done had he been Freud or anyone else. You know, he did it with fiction. So I was kind of interested in that idea to use fiction as a way to explore the, the things that I, um, I guess I find interesting. That, together with the idea about sex and sexuality underpinning friendships between men, was something that I was just interested in exploring. Do you feel that male relationships are somehow misrepresented? Or was there something, was there a specific aspect that you wanted to touch on in this novel? I feel that you don't always see a lot of it. Of course, you see a lot of relationships between men dealt with. But yeah, perhaps I, I, didn't, I didn't feel like there were books that were touching on the thing that I specifically was interested in. I mean, I'm not trying to sort of write some wholly original idea. I mean, there are, I mean, there are lots of books you could look at. I mean, you could look at the talented Mr. Ripley or uh, that famous beat novel called On the Road. Yes, that's it. There are lots there. But yeah, I, w I guess I was interested in coming to that question in my own way and, and sort of asking the, the questions that I sort of ask myself. You talk about a sexual underpinning behind the relationship of the two characters. Um, how does that actually reveal itself in the novel? While not on the face of it having anything to do with sex, I think the structures that are there are kind of, there are interesting parallels there. Um, and also this is, a, this is a story about two specific 
characters. You know, this is not, I mean, despite what I said before about sort of wanting to explore this idea in general, these are two specific people. So for them, or for this narrator, certainly, he's quite obsessed with sex and power, and he's trying to process things in that way. Yeah. Yeah, the characters are also quite interesting in relationship to each other. The narrator is quite adolescent in many ways, and also you kind of exaggerate that, like the Bonnie Prince Billy album and the kind of um, the way he even talks about talking to women. And then the other character is sort of um, James Dean, cigarette smoking, kind of street smart kind of guy. So they're kind of exaggerations. One thing I would say is that the um, is that the narrator is is dealing with those things in that specific situation with his friend Jacob. And I think there's there's an element that he is placing himself in that, if you if you call it an adolescent role or a sort of a less a more naive role or something like that, specifically because he is with his friend and he is placing himself into a power structure and making sure that he is underneath his friend. I mean, you're right not to quite trust this this persona that Jakub is kind of presenting in this scene. I do think that it's not all smoke and mirrors either. It's kind of these elements of their personalities that come out because almost because of their interactions with one another um, to a certain extent as well. Do you think this is kind of a coming of age story or do you think this is kind of a relationship that can exist at any age? I want this to be the latter. I'm constantly surprised when I see these kinds of dynamics at play between between men who are older, certainly. I don't think that this is something that's necessarily because the characters are, are younger or anything like that. I, I want to know what happens. You know, I, f- I feel like I have an emotional connection to this story. I want to get a kind of resolution for myself, even though that resolution will have been, will be a lie, will be an invention of myself. I want to see both of these people at the end of the story and and sort of know who they are after the things that have happened to them. And how's the writing community here in Berlin been for you? I, I really love it. I feel I've been here for five years and I feel as though I've, I've always kind of been involved with it in some way, but I feel like um, lately I'm kind of embracing it more and more I suppose one of the interesting things about the writing scene in Berlin that I've always felt is that it's a great shame that there is a real split between anglophone people and say German-speaking people or even French-speaking or, or any or, or anything else rippling out from that I've I do speak German and I do occasionally go to readings and things like that in German and the people you see there are just completely different people to the people you will see in a reading at a reading in English for things like visual arts, you know, I think it's much easier for everyone to come together and look at the same work and look at the same artists and have a response to them together. There's also this kind of melding happening between visual artists and writers and a lot of people writing 
in English, not as a first language and this kind of experimentation. And that's the kind of scene that I kind of dipped into, which I find really, yeah, really interesting. Also, like completely started to break down what the English language could mean or how it could be used. Absolutely. And just destroy it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's interesting what you're saying about a sort of an art and and literature or writing or whatever kind of melding. Yeah, and visual artists are, are trained to be thieves, you know. And when you, yeah. um, being sort of jack of all trades and, what do they say? And, and master of none. And master of none, you can't really sort of um, prevent them from kind of walking into any kind of field. So just one last thing. You already mentioned a few names, but uh, what are some of your influences and what are you reading right now? At the moment, I'm reading a very strange Hungarian novel by someone called Laszlo Krasna Horkai. is an approximate pronunciation of that. It's very dark and it, it has a strange, it has its own sort of set of rules and reality this novel which which is not always hard to get your head around and i'm not 100 enjoying it but i am certainly there with some very desolate characters walking desolately through desolate mud um, yeah lots of desolation um a book that recently really had an effect on me was um americana by chimamanda ngozi adichia which is is a very I don't know it's a it's 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 quite a conventional book in a lot of ways it's a it's essentially a love story about these two people who fell in love as teenagers in Nigeria and then they 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 get separated and but culturally I found it really fascinating because it was it was sort of a combination for me of stuff that I as someone of mixed race really identified with and felt like I found in my everyday life um, some of the some of the themes in the book, but also a combination of that and then stuff I had no idea about that I found really edifying in terms of sort of African people in the U.S. or or in Africa itself and and stuff that I racial concepts and ideas that I didn't actually have um, much of a consciousness of. So I and and it's also a very immaculately well told story as well. Um, and I just also want to mention, uh, I, I do really like um, Ben Lerner, who's he's better known as a poet, but he's written two novels, which I both really like. He plays a lot with structure, with autobiography, with the idea of the novel as a game. He plays a lot with with his own with making his own autobiography fiction, you know, with with turning memories into fiction lies into fiction fiction into lies and fiction into memories um. that was from a conversation i had with vj two weeks ago you can find more about his work on his website www.vjkurana.com listen to past and future episodes on letters to the editor's soundcloud page and what else Letters to the Editors is at least morally supported by AKV Berlin Publishing House. <laughs>